Good morning, family of God. As Christians who have forsaken all to follow Christ, we are a people of hope. Now, that hope is not defined as wishful thinking or naive optimism or even escapism. That hope is a confident expectation, an assurance that God will keep his word and will fulfill his purposes. As I was preparing the message for this week, I was reminded of that passage in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, when God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah and says, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. If this pandemic has taught us anything, it has taught us that we can't boast in wisdom. It has taught us that we can't boast in our might. It has taught us that we can't boast in our riches. Our wisdom fails. Our might fails. Our riches fail. None of those are secure enough. None of those are stable enough. None of those are sound enough for our hope. The only one worthy of our hope is the Lord, the God who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. This is the God who is most fully revealed in the person of Jesus Christ, whose steadfast love led him all the way to the cross, whose justice led him to lay down his life for the unjust, whose righteousness led him to give himself as the unblemished sacrifice to atone for our sins. Jesus cares about his love, righteousness, and justice being practiced in the earth in real time, in our context, so that more people would know the love of God and spread his love, his justice, his righteousness in the world. Now, we see today the effects of a world where hope is lost. Our friend, Mr. Hughes, puts it memorably. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun? Or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? In the span of about 24 hours between May 31st and June 1st, 1921, a white mob descended on Greenwood, a successful black economic hub in Tulsa, Oklahoma, then known as Black Wall Street, and burned it to the ground. Some members of the mob had been deputized and armed by city officials. In what is now known as the Tulsa Race Massacre, the mob destroyed 35 square blocks of Greenwood, burning down more than 1,200 black-owned houses, scores of businesses, a school, a hospital, a public library, and a dozen black churches. Now, that summary was provided by Human Rights Watch, and it sadly but accurately described the situation 99 years ago today in North Tulsa. Tulsa, like Minneapolis this week, was on fire. 
Hope can be hard to find today. And when that happens, sometimes deferred dreams explode. So what does God call us to do? As the hope people, what does God call us to do? Well, that's what we want to talk about today. So before we go any further, let's bow our heads and pray and ask God to help us to hear his word today. Our Father, we thank you for being a God of hope. We pray that you would equip us as a people of hope to do the work of hope and live lives of hope for your glory. Heal the broken, mend the wounded, give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's read our text. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for, for your progress and joy in the faith. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So as the hope people, what does God call us to do? Well, I think from this text, the first thing that God's calling us to do is to rejoice in the promise of deliverance. Rejoice in the promise of deliverance. Paul starts this week where he left off last week with rejoicing. If you were with us last week, remember Pastor John Mark gave us some context for this passage and provided the motivation for Paul's present rejoicing. Paul is under house arrest, likely in Rome. And even though he is under arrest, he is rejoicing because his focus, his priority, the priority of his life is the gospel. He wants everyone to know the good news about Jesus Christ who is the son of God, who came to earth, lived among us, died on the cross to take the penalty of our sins, was buried, rose from the grave on the third day, ascended to heaven, sat down on the throne and ruled over all of creation, sent his Holy Spirit to dwell in his saints and promises to return to make everything new. All who trust in him will participate in that new creation and will be with him forever. Paul's focus is that gospel. And because the gospel is being spread, even through his imprisonment, Paul rejoices. And I hope that this past week, in some way, you've been able to rejoice in the Lord and celebrate his goodness. This week, Paul starts by saying, yes, and I will rejoice. So not only have I been rejoicing, but more rejoicing is in my future. So Paul says, how does he know he will rejoice? Well, the answer is in verse 19. He says, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul is rejoicing because he is confident that through the Philippians prayers for him and through the Holy Spirit's work, Paul will be delivered. 
how exciting. I bet the Philippians are excited about that. But but now we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean by deliverance? Last week he was excited about his imprisonment because he was sharing the gospel with the imperial guard. Now is he is he getting out of prison? Well, if we look at the verses that follow, Paul seems pretty sure that there's a really good possibility he's going to die at the hands of the Romans. The Romans aren't aren't jokers about capital punishment. So what does Paul mean by my deliverance at the end of verse 19? Well, to understand this, we need to recognize that Paul here is quoting the Old Testament when he says, this will turn out for my deliverance. It's not in quotation marks in my Bible, much probably like yours, doesn't have a footnote here, so it's hard to spot. But but here, Paul is taking a line from the ancient book of Job. Now, Job was a wealthy man with a large family. He had a wife, seven sons, three daughters, many, many cattle and sheep and camels. In the span of just a few days, Job tragically lost everything. Everything. His possessions were either stolen or burned. All of his kids died in a crazy windstorm, and then he got severely sick. It was honestly like a riot, an epidemic, and a devastating Oklahoma tornado all in one. I know you can imagine that. Some friends try to come and comfort him, but they aren't very wise. They're the kind of friends who who troll you on Facebook and negate everything you say. They talk too much and give unhelpful advice for how to deal with his grief. And their main logic is this. This is the main logic. Here's how the world works, Job. If you do the right thing and don't break any laws, you'll be fine. In fact, you'll even be rewarded. If you do the wrong thing and break laws, you'll be punished. Now, you're obviously being punished, which means you probably broke some laws. You must deserve the treatment that you're getting. That's the advice that his friends are giving him. Comfortable or comforting. No, I don't think so either. It's insensitive. It's naive. It's illogical. It denies the real complexity of the situation and it paints an emphasis insufficient picture of the nature of God. So listen to how Job explains the situation of what his friends are doing to him. In Job chapter 12, verse 4, he says this. He says, I am a laughing stock. To my friends, I who called to God and he answered me, a just and blameless man, am a laughing stock. In the thought of one who is at ease, there is contempt for misfortune. It is ready for those whose feet slip. Do you hear the shame that Job is facing? Do you see how how exposed he is? Even his friends are laying him bare, rubbing salt. In his wounds. But listen to his response. This is what Paul focuses on, and this is what we need to focus on in our day and time. We find his response, one of part of his response in chapter 13, verses 15 and 16. He says this says, Though he slay me, he is God. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Yet I will argue my ways to his face. This will be my salvation. There it is. That's the that's what we're looking for. That's that's the, what we see in in Philippians one nineteen. It says, "This will turn out for my deliverance." That's it translated. This will be my salvation. That the godless shall not come before him. So so Paul in Philippians one is quoting Job 
in this episode with his friends in which they're mocking him, laughing at him. Um, and he responds by saying, though God slay me, I will hope in him. I'm going to argue my case before him. And this is my salvation, that the godless won't come before him. What is Job saying? He's saying this. He's saying God did this. My family's gone. My possessions are gone. My health is gone. God did that. And if he kills me, even if he kills me, I'm going to hope in him. I'm not hoping in my circumstance. God's sovereignty in my tragedy reminds me that he is my only hope. Let me say that again. God's sovereignty in my tragedy reminds me that he is my only hope. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So I will take my dispute directly to him. Now, I want you to skip the third line for a second. The godless shall not come before him. No unrighteous person can stand before a holy God. The guilty and the godless are consumed before him. That Job can stand before God and argue his ways to God's face without being consumed is Job's salvation. It is his deliverance. It is his vindication. It proves that though his friends consider him a laughing stock, he is in reality a just and blameless man. That's from chapter 12, verse 4 again. So the word deliverance is this word vindication. Psalm 135, verse 14 says, for the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants. Now, Paul like Job, is rejoicing in the promise of his vindication. Though rivals mock him, though authorities imprison him, even if the government kills him, God will vindicate him. We know Paul is sure of this because of a couple of things he says about death in this passage. Look at verse 21. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. How can death be gain for Paul? He answers that in verse 23. I am hard pressed between the two, between to live and to die. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. Do you hear Paul's confidence? He knows that death for him is life with Christ. Now, because he trusts in Christ, he is already experiencing life with Christ. He's already united with Christ. But when he dies, and this is the hope for everyone who, who has turned from their sins to trust in Jesus, death is the gateway to life. And that life is far better than this life. If you're watching or listening to this message and you you haven't turned from your sins and received God's gift of life, you can do that today. It's an act of faith of saying in your heart, God, I need you. I'm a sinner who has turned from your way. Forgive my sins. My life is yours. And God will change the trajectory of your life so that death for you means the gateway to life with Jesus forever. To a new creation where there's no more tragedy, no more pain, no more sickness, no more racism, no more oppression, where righteousness, peace, and joy dwell. You can be like Paul, assured that God will vindicate you for good when Jesus comes. Now, family, 
There is a lot of unrest and trepidation in the world right now. And it's almost guaranteed that if you try to share the gospel, if you try to stand for justice, if you try to love people, you will, you will be misinterpreted, you will be misunderstood, and you will be misheard. With how polarized our society is right now, someone will think you're wrong for trying to love your neighbor. Love anyway. That does not mean we throw wisdom to the wind and don't try to consider the impact of our actions. Love doesn't equal foolish. However, if you seek to do the Lord's will and you're misinterpreted, misunderstood, misheard, the gospel frees us to remember the promise that God will vindicate his people so we can joyfully keep loving people even when they misinterpret, misunderstand, and mishear our love. So the first thing that I think God's calling us to do is to rejoice in the promise of our vindication, our deliverance, our vindication. Now, I obviously can't take as long on the next point, but but it is important and it leads into the final point. The second thing we learn to do from this text is to rehearse the magnification of Christ in our bodies. Let me tell you what I mean. Look at verse look at verse 20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Now, Paul's talking about his hope. And here it is that 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 he won't be ashamed, either in his, his testimony before people, even though people are mocking him or before God. When Jesus comes, he won't be ashamed. He's not. There's no shame left for Paul because he's confident in Jesus. And that with full courage, the idea here is is an openness or, or in a in a visible public way. Now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Christ will be honored in Paul's body. Christ will be magnified. And this is in my body, my public life, my life in the flesh. Paul says, when you look at me and what I'm doing, what I'm giving my time to, you'll see more and more of Christ in me. Notice, Paul says, he, Christ will be magnified in his body. He is confident that Christ will be made much of in his life. How is Paul so sure, so sure that Christ will be magnified, be honored in his body? It's connected to the promise of vindication. Christ has promised that death in Christ is gained. So Paul can be certain of Christ's commitment to his lifestyle of honor. So he responds with a commitment of his own. That's the last point. Last point of what God's calling us to do is what Paul does, which is remain committed to fruitful labor. Remain committed to fruitful labor. In verse 21, we have the beautiful summary statement of Paul's life that many of you memorized after Pastor John Mark uh, preached from this text last year. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, what is the the, the Christ lifestyle look look like well it, it looks like what we see in verses uh, in verse 22 and in the rest of the passage verse 22 says if I am to live in the flesh that means fruitful labor for me now fruitful labor for me so in other words if I'm going to go on living if if I don't die if I continue to live that means fruitful labor for me now life for Paul then is about 
productivity. But this is the kind of productivity producing that looks like mountains of to-do lists and only working on things that are measurable. In verse 25 and 26, Paul explains more of what fruitful labor looks like. And it looks like giving your life actually to those things that are in many ways intangible, but that have eternal rewards. Look what he says in verse 25 and 26. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, Paul's fruitful labor looks like spending his energy investing in the spiritual lives of the Philippians so that they can progress in the faith, they can grow more mature and experience more joy in the faith. They will know the love of Christ and thereby be strengthened to trust God in every circumstance. In other words, he will be, he will remain committed to discipling the Philippians to boast in nothing and no one but the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth and who revealed himself most fully in Christ Jesus. Now, I believe that, that God is calling us to the same thing in a world that is very quickly losing hope. I believe that God wants to, wants us to, um, rehearse the magnification of Jesus in our public lives by remaining committed to fruitful labor. And that fruitful labor looks like the embodying of the presence of Christ in the lives of people. So to summarize, God, God calls us to rejoice in the promise of our vindication. He calls us to rehearse the magnification, the honoring of Christ in our bodies, in our everyday public life. And he calls us to remain committed to fruitful labor, to give ourselves for the long haul to laboring on things that will produce fruit and last. Now, church family, what do we do with this text today, this week? I believe, I believe the gospel and I believe God in this text is calling us to do some internal work and some external work in our present day and time based on these truths. The first thing that the gospel calls us to do in this is if 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 you are freed in Christ and you have what Paul has here, which is the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, and where the freedom of where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. The gospel then frees us to confront our own brokenness. So I've got some some questions here I want you to think about with regard to this idea. And here's what I'm getting this: I'm getting this from the reality that if we're not if God's going to vindicate us. We have nothing to be ashamed of, that we can be fully exposed before the Lord and and we can come to him as we are, trusting he's going to transform us from the inside out. So here's some questions to think about the reality of the gospel frees us to confront our brokenness. Is there resentment in your heart toward a person or a group of people that have, has been exposed in the last couple of weeks? Are there relationships that maybe you're realizing you're not interested in fixing? Is there disappointment in your life that has resulted in callousness? 
Is there apathy toward the sufferings of others? The gospel frees us to confront our brokenness as the Holy Spirit reveals it. But it doesn't just free us to confront our brokenness. The gospel frees us to confess our brokenness to the Lord and to each other. If you really knew, next question, if you really knew that in Christ you would not be put to shame, what secret sin would you bring to the healing light of trusted friends or or a wise mentor? If you really knew that in Christ you would not be put to shame, what secret hidden sin would you bring to the healing light of trusted friends or a wise mentor? The gospel frees us to confess our brokenness. The gospel also frees us to hope in God. Is there injustice that you feel helpless to fix right now? Is there any injustice you feel just helpless to fix? You're free to hope in God. Are there bigger prayers that God is calling you to pray and then keep praying and then keep praying until he answers them? You are free in the gospel to hope in God. And lastly, the gospel frees us for fruitful labor in the brokenness in our world. The gospel frees us for fruitful labor in that brokenness in our world. Are there people God is calling you to invest your life in for their progress and joy in the faith? Are there people God is calling you to invest your life in, to get dirty with, for their progress and joy in the faith, like like Paul was doing with the Philippians? Ask the Lord to search your heart to the answers to these questions, and then trust him. Trust him with the answers. Many of you know of the atrocities that were committed in South Africa during the time of apartheid. Alan Payton wrote a book about the experience in South Africa called Cry the Beloved Country. And in a work entitled The Other Side, Alan Payton had this to say about Uh, One of the intense times of unrest in 1976, 1977 in Soweto. He said, I say to my fellow South Africans, if you have no hope, you should get out as soon as possible. If you have unbounded hope, you should go and see a psychiatrist. If you can't give up hope, if you insist on hoping against hope, then persist with all the things you have been doing to make this a better country. Family, I think now is a time for us to take this quote to heart. We are a people of hope who hope against hope. And therefore, We can give ourselves wholeheartedly to fruitful labor for Christ to be magnified in our midst. Let's pray. Our Father, we are a people and we are a community and we are a city and a nation 
and a world in desperate need of you. We pray that you would make us a people who trust in and love deeply and believe in the promise that you're going to vindicate us. Every act of unrighteousness, every act of injustice you're going to vindicate. Help us be a people who make much of Jesus in our everyday lives, who honor him in everything that we do. And make us a people who joyfully commit ourselves to fruitful labor in the lives of other people so that you will get all the glory. Christ will be exalted. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.